Welcome to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business at Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Acadia University is a member of the Maple League of Universities, an association of the premier, primarily undergraduate universities that consistently rank highest for educational quality in Canada. The School of Business at Acadia University is named after Fred C. Manning, the first person in Canada to receive the honor of having a business school named after him. To learn more about Acadia University and the business school, please visit acadiau.ca and business.acadiau.ca. And now, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome back to another installment of the Acadia Business School podcast. My name is Brenda McNeil, a third-year finance student. I'm here today in the beautiful town of Wolfville with Mr. Chris Keevil, uh, CEO and founder of Color.ca in Halifax in New York. And Chris, I'll let you give more of an introduction of yourself and your company there. Well, thanks, Brendan. It's good to be here at Acadia. Um, I'm an Acadia grad from the last century, way back. After your dad was here, though. He was here in the uh, late 70s. I was here in the 80s, right? Right. So he's got that on you. Hey, do you know Joe Mosier? Oh, of course I know so Joe, Joe Mosier. So Joe Mosier uh, interviewed me here at Acadia when he was the chief recruiter at NBTEL. Really? Yeah. And he he uh, he didn't give me a job. No way. Didn't so- even get a second interview, in fact. So if Joe Mosier's listening out there... He should know. I haven't forgotten that fact. You just got to call him out. Hey, I got to call him That's out. That's too funny. Whenever I get a chance. I wouldn't have thought he would have been that far ahead. He's already way out, chief recruiting officer. And he, just, he was. He was a kid. And... He was a kid. He was a kid. So That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Katie was uh, was a great way to start, uh, start a career. And uh, both my daughters went here as well. Emma okay. graduated in 2014 and Meg in 2016. Pretty recent. recently, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, with Color.ca, what is your company and and what do you do? And maybe what is a bit of your motives behind starting that company? Yeah, well, I didn't start it. In fact, it's uh, yeah. nice of you to call me a founder, but we're it's actually a forty year old company that I really? bought. Okay, I didn't re- know that. And I rebranded it, renamed it Color. Uh, so it was previously called Corporate Communications Limited, mm. or CCL. And CCL was a well-established uh, marketing and public relations firm based in Halifax, started in uh, 1977. Mm. So, uh, so I actually took that over and bought it from its founder, Steve Parker, uh, over the course of about 10 years, in fact, until 2006, we rebranded it a color on my 40th birthday. Very appropriate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's a nice present. I mean, yeah. it's definitely a good touch of modernization. Color.ca sounds much better. <laughs> Way more catchy. It, it's, yeah, Corporate Communications Limited was a bit dated. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely old old age kind of Now, quick story. I know I know you've probably got some questions here, Brendan. But, no, please but this, launch this, into it. It's kind of interesting because um, we were struggling with the name Corporate Communications Limited because it was so dated. Yeah. And I was at Acadia one day like this in October of 2005 and I was speaking at uh, um, an advertising and promotions class, a fourth year class um, with a new grad, a new employee at Color who had just graduated the year before from Acadia. 
So I came back and I spoke to the class and, and, uh, and she was with me. She was, you know, 22, 23 years old and yeah. this was her first job. She was, you know, getting paid below the poverty line working for the company at the time. Naturally. But she was happy to do it and she was getting some great experience. So on the drive back from Acadia, I've been thinking in my mind about a new name for the agency. And I was in the conversations with the founder, Steve Parker, who had started the company many years before and was quite, you know, fond of and attached to the name of his company. Yeah. He named it. He liked the name. Yeah. But we had a lot of feedback from clients and whatnot that it was that it was dated. So uh, true story, as we're driving back through the fall in 2005 from from Wolfville back to Halifax, I noticed uh, the change in the colors of the leaves and i said what a great name for an ad agency to be called color because of the effect that we have on brands through right. change through color and just through adding life to a brand and i thought wow. isn't that isn't that kind of interesting so i said to um to her at the time her name was kim i said kim and she's she's a you know uh, an entry-level employee i said mm. kim I got an idea. I want to run it by you, but you can't tell anybody the idea. She's like, wow, I'm moving up fast. She's moving up fast. So I told her the idea and I said, what do you think? She said, I think that's a great idea. So I said, all right, let's do it. But now I had to, you know, work with the founder of the company because he still owned a big piece of it at the time right. to convince him to change the name. Yeah, and bring he, him and, on board. And he did. So there's an Acadia that's connection to, uh, to the company. I love that story because, I mean... I never would have known the significance behind it. I mean, like, mm -hmm. just colored pretty general in yeah. my mind. But I love seeing that connection because it's, it's so true that mm -hmm. color is so correlated with creativity and right. capturing your attention and, yeah. and the changing of the color, like you're changing of a, a brand's uh, viewpoint or idea in people's minds. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, starting, pulling it back a bit, um, before we get into color.ca, I want to build some groundwork with what led you here first. Okay. Um, before you were at color.ca, was one of your longest stints would have been at, at New North Media for about 10 years, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, what was New, More, New North Media and like what were um, some obviously things you did there, but then things you brought from New North Media, lessons you learned into color.ca mm -hmm. going forward? Yeah. So, New North Media was a company that was started inside the phone company in New Brunswick. Yeah. So, when I, um, when I finished school and didn't get a job at NBTEL, uh, I got a job with the Irvings, and then after I worked for the Irvings, I went back to school and I did an MBA. But then after my MBA, actually during my MBA, I studied. Uh, I studied for one semester in Europe, and I worked for uh, AT and T. Really? Yeah, yeah. When they were just launching their equipment arm in yeah. Europe, in a joint venture with Philips Telecommunications. So. While I was there, I got introduced to this idea of telecommunications and data networks. Now, this is in 1990, 91, yeah. and I had not yet heard the word internet at yeah. this time, right? So this is this is way back, way back. I literally had not heard the word internet. It didn't exist in the popular culture at all no, it was until just really geeks. about 1994. Not even geeks. I mean, at that time, it would have just been researchers in universities in the yeah, 1990s, just, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... But um, but I could see, you know, from my work with AT&T in Europe that this telecom thing was exciting. It was exciting to me. And um, um, I never got an engineering degree, but I always had an interest in uh, in technology. 
And so when I came, when I came, when I finished school, I called my buddy who worked at NBTEL, Joe Mosier, did hire him. His name's Doug Drummond. So I called Doug and because he was my roommate here at Acadia. Yeah, you're like, Doug, come on, help, help me out a bit. Yeah, well, I said, Doug, I said, look, I, I just came back from Europe and I was working in telecom and I'd really like to work in this area, but I want to work for the most innovative uh, telecom company yeah. in, in the world. Just the bleeding edge. I want to be right on the bleeding edge. Where should I go to work? Yeah. Doug said, you should come to New Brunswick. Because we are on the bleeding edge of telecom and technology and networks. And I That's said, awesome to hear. It makes me so proud. I said, no way. He said, absolutely. He said, we've got, uh, we've got a great leadership team here. And they are really stepping it up. And a lot of that innovation is led by a guy named Jerry Pond, who's already yeah. been on the show. Yeah. Okay. So Jerry, Jerry's, he's like the godfather. It sounds to, like it. To all of us. Okay? Yeah. So we all, a whole group of people yeah. with a lot of connections to Acadia, actually, coincidentally, um, were really, I'll say, raised professionally yeah. by Jerry. And, and Jerry had a unique way of tying together the real world realities to uh, emerging technologies. And the emerging technology okay. of the day was... Uh, data networking yeah. to become known as the internet. Okay. First week on the job at NBTEL, I get called to a meeting for the branding project. It's a long Jeez. story, but you wanted to know how New North Media came about. This is how it came about. Yeah. So I get called to a meeting on the branding project. And uh, I got invited probably because I was in market planning at the time. And a market planner's job would be to work on some of this marketing stuff. And this branding project must have had something to do with marketing. So they invite the new marketing guy yeah. to come to this meeting first week on the job. And so <clears throat> the branding project turned out to be uh, the manifestation of an idea from Jerry Pond. He wrote a letter, typewritten letter, to the president of Nortel. Nortel at the time was the leading network telecom manufacturer in Canada yeah. and would soon become one of the largest, if not the largest in the world. And so the, the letter to the president of Nortel was the subject line in the letter was branding our network. In the letter, he describes how Ebitel as a leading innovator had launched for the first time in North America, a fully digital network. And because they had launched the first fully digital network in North America, maybe in the world, they were able to put new services on this network. One of the services that had launched was calling line ID, the ability to see the number of the person calling you, sounds amazing, yeah. before you answer the phone. That would be genius. Through. Genius, brilliant, eh? So at the time, the telephone network, the phones you bought, the service you got from the phone company, the long-distance service, everything you bought from the phone company was a fully regulated monopoly. No competition. You mm -hmm. had to buy your phone from the phone company. You had to buy your phone service from the from the phone company. Yeah. Only one phone company in New Brunswick had a full monopoly. It was MBTEL. So you would think in a monopoly service like that wouldn't be the place that fostered innovation. It would foster complacency. Yeah. But absolutely. not with the leadership team at MBTEL. They were preparing for the opening up of the market, deregulation, and full competition. And was that speculation on that inevitability or was there already regulation being 
kind of put in place. There, there. was regulation being put in place. Okay. That, yep, yep. So regulation in the U.S. had already proceeded. So yeah. U.S. regulation had already been opened up, and it was inevitable that it was going to open up in Canada. Right. The CRTC in Ottawa was making it very clear to the phone companies to get ready, and the leaders at NBTEL took that seriously, yep. partly because NBTEL was small enough to affect major change in a small, mostly rural network, yeah. and because of the grit and forward thinking of that culture of New Brunswick, which is arguably the culture of all of Atlanta, Canada, because we come from a place of scarcity. So we had to be a little scrappier. Yes. And had to prepare. Got to be clever. So what's this got to do with branding? Well, he said, he said, what I want you to do, Nortel, is find a way to send a message to the display on that phone that says, thank you from NBTEL. Anytime someone makes a long-distance call because I want to brand the network in a competitive marketplace. Oh, that's true. I remember my dad mentioning that, that I think this is the same thing that you guys developed, like digital advertising, excuse me, a five-line digital advertising before that was ever a thing. That was a thing. That's right. So we, so, so when I got into this project to try to find a technological way to get this thank you text message delivered through yeah. an analog phone network with a bunch of engineers from NBTEL and from Nortel, we started to think that way. We said, well, if we can send that message through the network and we can brand our network that way, wouldn't it be cool if we could, in a digital way, help other companies brand their products and services? Okay. And that's how the advertising component of sending ads to the display on the phone, right. along with uh, full banking information. So we worked with. We ended up starting this company, New North Media, to deliver uh, full banking for like like online banking on your phone before there was online banking. Wouldn't wow. even we didn't even call it online banking. It was just banking, but it was on the screen of your phone with these push buttons. Yeah. We had airline reservations, airline schedules, weather, sports scores, horoscopes, news. All these information services that were ad supported got delivered to the phone. Wow. So this was. Again, before we'd heard the word internet, it was a precursor. It, it predated. It's not a yeah. precursor. It predated the the work that has now become obviously ubiquitous on yeah. all network devices. You guys were building iPhone apps before either yeah. of those even existed. Yeah, in a way. Wow. In a way. So this was basically you guys kind of had an innovation and you saw an opportunity here and you just thought it would be... Um, stupid not to pursue it basically and, and like you have this innovation so you might as well sell it right right well it was it was um, less the the innovation in NBTEL at the time was less about opportunism and more about survival yeah so we recognize that that technology needed to be and could be a part of the Atlantic Canadian ecosystem and that it was um, in a way, an obligation of the phone company to be leaders in that. Yeah. And that was the spirit behind New North Media is just one of the many innovations that came out okay. of the phone company in, in the 90s. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Hearing hearing all these things behind the scenes when I thought St. John and New Brunswick was just an old sleepy place. But. It was, it, you know, but it was, it, was, um, it was a time when we were uh, having phone companies from all over the world come to visit us. In, in New Brunswick, yeah. and and many um, NBTEL employees were traveling all over the world to sell some of this technology. Yeah. So if I get picked up by a cab in the morning to go to the airport, 
St. John's a small town and the cab drivers kind of get to know you. And they would say things like, where are you going? Where are you going this week? You know, you're going to Singapore, yeah. we're going to Dallas, or we're going to London or Toronto. We were going all over the world to, um, this is later in the evolution of that uh, innovation cycle. And we were selling the technology and the innovations okay. to phone companies around the world. Yeah, I remember back in, in those days, my, my father used to travel a lot as well mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. the marketing team, imagine, mm -hmm. along the same lines. Yeah. Um, I have to, just out of curiosity, was John Lockett one of your engineers on New North Media? John or? wasn't John wasn't on in, on that project, but he okay. was a he was a major uh, force of innovation. Yeah. yeah. So, anecdotally, I think there's an an important personal lesson here. Obviously, there's many lessons drawing from New North Media, but applicable to students coming out of university, mm -hmm. you took your first shot. At at MBTEL and and failed, mm -hmm. but Joe Mosher turned you away. Well, he failed. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of what we're trying to come prove here. Is he was the one missing out. So, what experience was it? Was it your work at AT and T or your networking with Doug Drummond pulling the strings that got you the job, or what was it that helped you kind of push through that initial setback and getting into that first employment? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it was. Partly the desire. So yeah. people used to say that you should, early in your career, I suppose it still applies now, pursue uh, a sunrise career, not a sunset. Mm. A sunrise industry, not a sunset industry. Yeah. And so that made sense to me. And, um, and so uh, that, that, was, that appeared to be the sunrise industry, and, and it was. Yeah. And so Doug you know, introduced me into the recruiting cycle at the phone company. He, he wouldn't, he was only, he'd only been there for a few years himself. So he wouldn't have been able to pull any strings exactly, but having a personal endorsement inside a company to be trusted by someone who is trusted goes a long way in, in hiring. Right. And, um, it's hard to break in as a total stranger into, into a company these days. It's it's better if you can find a connection through someone who knows you and trusts you to make a connection to someone who knows and trusts them. Yeah. And so that is effectively the way that worked. And as I think about that, that's been the case for every move I've made in my career has been through that kind of a channel. I've never, I don't think I've ever applied for a job, you know, yeah. like on a website or something absolutely like so yeah you can connect to somebody on the inside and it's much easier to get drawn in than just mm -hmm. being a stranger mm -hmm. of course to have that testimony yeah and 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 i think people might find that if they try to connect with um five people they know four of them might not have a lot of time for them but one yeah. will yeah so there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of an odds game there yeah and you want to be respectful too when you're networking early in your career with someone later in the career that you're you're respectful of their time and yeah. their attention and their ability to help you may be limited yeah. or not and so. i like the i like the fact that you use the words like desire and when you're talking about jerry and Emitel talking about grit because um i was listening to a i think it was a clinical uh psychiatrist she was in the psychology field and had worked with her peers to conduct a very large survey across um, many industries, I think like 3,000 different candidates and students and professionals alike. 
and um, underprivileged and privileged just to get the whole randomization selection. And they're trying to figure out what determines success. So that's why they looked at underprivileged people and then all the way up to the ones that won the genetic lottery and were getting scholarships, right? And they looked at obviously the obvious ones like uh, intelligence, IQ, and conscientiousness, which have been long held as very important. And uh, funny, we're talking about Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson actually mentions conscientiousness as being one of the most important factors of success. I remember listening to that in one of his podcasts. Mm -hmm. But um, this woman, this psychologist, says um, the unanimous findings of this this survey uh, that they conducted was that the one thing, it wasn't intelligence and it wasn't conscientiousness, the one thing that determined success and how far you could go in life was grit. Mm. And she used that word. It's like, how hard can you push when you're getting knocked back? How many times can you step out when you get knocked down? Mm -hmm. So I love, I mean, it was, albeit potentially unfortunate for you, but I love mm -hmm. using that example of not getting hired right off the bat out mm -hmm. of university because mm -hmm. it shows people yeah, it's not perfect. You're not going to be like a shooting star that just breezes through life, no, right? right? You need perseverance and, and grit to, I mean, come as far as you you have that that stands as a testimony to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. What well, one one of the things um, I'll ask a new hire in our company, if we're in the interview process, is what's the toughest thing you've ever done or overcome, mm. and for a lot of people who come from privilege, that's a hard question to answer. Yeah, nothing immediately jumps out. There wasn't a lot of hardship there. Not real hardship. Yeah, at least nothing that they would want to present. Maybe not, there. right? Yeah. But but the, the what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get from them is to recognize that we've all had some hardship. Yeah. We've had loss and setback and disappointment and we've had challenges. Everyone's had those. And the question isn't the degree to which you've been set back it's how have you recovered from that and do you have the ability to bounce off and come back some people just bounce off of yeah. hard they yeah. hit hard and they bounce off we have a um, we also have a, a a series of tests for new hires to just examine competency uh, literacy uh, you know word comprehension and communication skills and also analytic skills now, the analytics test that we give is designed to not be doable. I don't know if I could do it, quite honestly. So it's not designed to be like problems that. that are solved. Yeah. It's designed to see how hard you try to solve it. Right. So there's one case where, you know, a day after we had interviewed this young fella and, and given him the assignment, he sent an email back to our manager and he said, this test isn't fair. You guys aren't treating us fairly. This isn't. That this this isn't right what you're doing and and he didn't want to do the test because it was hard mm. and he thought it was unreasonable for us to give a hard test yeah and this by the way was also a guy who didn't come up with a good answer to the question what was the hardest thing you've ever overcome but the point I that i try to be a correlation yeah there. the point i try to make to these folks is that um that what you're going to do in the early part of your career if you're lucky is the hardest thing you've ever done. Yeah. And when I say if you're lucky, it's because that first job should be two to three times harder than your toughest year at Acadia or at Dow or at St. FX yeah. or Queens. It should be two or three times tougher than your toughest year yeah. if you're lucky because that's going to pressure test your ability to really start to learn and move ahead. I remember mm -hmm. once in, in thinking back to the days at NBTEL, 
where young managers were given the opportunity to get exposure to the leadership team. Mm. And um, in those days, there were first-level managers. That's what you got. Well, you got hired in as a manager trainee, and then you get promoted to first level. There were second levels, third levels, department heads, and VPs. So okay. five, counting the CEO, six layers of management. Yeah. But... It wasn't uncommon for a first-level manager to get in a meeting with a VP. So you're you're in a meeting with your second level, your department head, maybe your VP, and you'd be in this discussion. And I remember once saying to my department head as I walked out of this, what I thought was a really hard meeting, mm. very challenging. Um, and 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 I remember saying to my department head, you know, I'm like 25, 26 years old, that I think I'm good. I think I'm going to be okay staying at the level that i'm at because i've just seen what it takes to perform at that higher level yeah and i don't think i'm i don't think i'm going to get there yeah. and i'm and i'm okay i'm okay with that i like come to terms with my my own limitations you'd already accepted your fate i'd accepted my fate and he kind of laughed and he said he he gave me i think some good advice at the time and 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 that was a good lesson so in that experience you're going to get knocked down and you're going to feel even defeated. Yeah. But it's your ability to get back up and, uh, and keep trying. Absolutely. Yeah. And also with that, I recognize that a lot at university looking around and then seeing friends go to co-ops, you can see the culture gap, the massive culture gap between university and corporate culture. It's like mm -hmm. corporate culture is based around everybody, like the 40 and 50 year olds who, and, and the heads and the VPs, those are the people that set the culture and it runs down yeah. from there. Yeah. So being a, a 21 year old, I'm coming from a culture at university that's set by 20 year olds mm -hmm. into a culture that's set yeah. by 50 year old vice presidents. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, obviously there's a huge S curve there, right? There is. But now the, the, the culture at a place like Acadia is a very uh, nurturing culture that gives you the chance yeah. to um, at least get partway up that curve. You don't, you shouldn't expect to, to be there. That's I think one of the great things at Acadia is it gives you experiences that, you can, um, you know, you can try things and experiment different things and, yeah. and take on new opportunities like hosting a podcast exactly. or working in the student union or the business society or all the various, yeah. you know, clubs and opportunities that happen outside of class. And, and those are giving you kind of a warm up. To that, yeah. to that kind of culture. And they have a, an impressive amount of case competitions as well for right. business students. And that's kind of the, the golden goose in, in the business world. And you hear that from every, like all my peers that would, would yeah. do them say like, if you have a chance to do a case competition, do it. I agree. Because there's like, there's one, there's one last week hosted by Shaw. There's one uh, in January hosted by JDI and they'll have um, like managers and VPs come in and, and be the panel. I mean, mm -hmm. that's why it's sponsored by them, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not just like them scrutinizing your work and your analytical business thinking. Yeah. It's also them seeing what you have to offer you, connecting with these people and establishing those relationships, yeah. like you said. And JDI having... will hire the people too that they exactly. see in that case competition. I, yeah, I, I it's know, like a I screening process guys. for that. For sure, yeah, it's very smart. Yeah. It's very smart. So I want to tie our conversation about grit and hardship mm -hmm. and failure into uh, a question I have about 
those those things failure coming up in the initial days of color.ca because mm-hmm. i imagine obviously it, it wasn't a, a startup from the ground mm-hmm. in the beginning but i mm-hmm. imagine you starting out you would have gotten hit in the face knocked down a couple times before yeah. you could really get your feet under you so yeah. do you have anecdotes from that or advice mm-hmm. and stories well when i when i joined what was then ccl it was a traditional agency yeah uh with a client base exclusively in Atlantic Canada, and more than half of the business was tied to government. Okay, so okay. the tourism department was a client, the liquor corporation, the lottery, those mm-hmm. kinds of clients were <clears throat> important in in the CCL of the day. Um, and then the other half would have been tied to corporate head offices in Atlantic Canada, uh, like Sobeys, uh, Labatt, um, uh, Atlantic Wholesalers, uh, these kinds of companies. Two things happened over the course of about five years after me joining, or during those five years. Head offices moved, or the budgets moved. In the case of Sobeys, Labatt, Atlantic Wholesalers, um, McCain, mm. all those marketing budgets that in the day supported an ecosystem of marketing service firms, ad agencies, in Atlantic Canada, those head offices all moved in about a five-year period. Yeah. At the same time, the economies weren't strong and governments were cutting back budgets. So those government contracts shrunk. So mm-hmm. there was contraction in our agency industry in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in particular that shrunk by about 20% a year. Okay, so you do the math, 20% reduction a year over five years gets you darn close to zero. Sounds like a sunset industry. It's a sun- Going from one end to the other. It was a sunset industry, no doubt. So it was... We were struggling with a lot of um, a lot of contraction and a lot of downsizing in our agencies and struggling profitability. Yeah. Um, and so there was a point where um, agencies were failing. So uh, big agent, uh, agencies that had once been big and profitable, private-owned agencies of Atlantic Canada, were failing, going bankrupt, shutting their doors, closing their offices, sending their people home. Yeah. And so that was a period of real struggle in CCL and it continued into the early days in the early days of color. So we were, we were bottoming out in as a business in, in the mid two thousands and late two thousands up until about 2010, the business really struggled with small projects, uh, declining revenues, um, without those revenues and those profits, it was very hard to invest in people and build, you know, build the talent pool that an agency needs to compete. Yeah. So it was, it was tough. So how did you evolve and what particular characteristics have changed since 2010 um, to, to grow your customer base again? Well, I had always had a background and an interest dating back to the nineties in digital marketing and digital media, right back to the days of ads on screen phones. And we, um, we applied, some of my experience and others that, that we brought in and developed inside color to become a digital first agency, what we call a digital first agency. So we were a 40-year-old agency focused in traditional media, advertising and public affairs, and we retooled ourselves, or to lose, use a, a, a startup term, we pivoted to be a digital first agency focused okay. on social media, digital creative, and digital media. So that was one thing we did. And the other thing we did was we opened an office in Toronto. So I bought a small agency in Toronto 
and from that foothold, which was a, a meager foothold, we were actually um, sharing space with AOL Canada. Like when I say sharing space, I mean they lent me a couple of offices in their office yeah. because the guy that ran that was a friend of mine. So he said, your little scrappy, scruffy team can sit over there in the corner, just don't bother anybody. Yeah. So that's how we started <laughs> off in Toronto. And, um, and so that uh, opening up that, what we'd call an export market was the thing that allowed us to uh, grow and stay alive. And would that have been uh, a leap of faith or did you already have customers in Toronto and you're moving to foster that? We didn't, we didn't have really any relationships in Toronto. So the, the way that we, the way that we kind of jumpstarted that was to buy a small agency who had some okay. relationships yeah. with some clients and they had a small team. Yeah. So that gave us a bit of a jumpstart. You're listening to The Exchange, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration at Katy University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Podcast host Brennan McNeil interviews Chris Keeble, CEO of Color, a creative digital agency that has offices in New York, Toronto, and Halifax. So I noticed I want to read a couple quotes from your website. You combine a lot of seriousness but lighthearted jest as uh-huh. well in a lot of your ads. And so on your website, um, introducing your team members, it, it says, um, like, in context of bringing the team out to lunch, this is what you would see. It would be a weirdly shaped, multi-headed hydra of a table, but you get it. Also, when you have lunch with these guys, they tend to pick up the bill, so we let them sit wherever they want. <laughs> and then there's uh, another quote, which is about your services, and it says, which is why our team is as comfortable with equations as we are with emotions. And then in brackets, flashes award-winning smile and adjusts jacket lapels just so. <laughs> so in for me, in analyzing a lot of companies, because I do uh, dabble in startup investing, yeah. investing in business analysis myself, I've noticed like it's, it's of the utmost importance to make sure you get a serious pitch across on your website to customers or investors or right. whoever's going to be reading it. Right. And using comedy in, in a lot of the instances I've seen it can seriously devalue the company mm-hmm. and take mm-hmm. away from your message and make you lo- look like a joke, even if it's unintended mm-hmm. and trying to mm-hmm. be funny. How do you guys balance the the line between jesting and this lightheartedness, mm-hmm. but also seriousness? And mm-hmm. is that like experience based, or is there a formula there? Well, it's 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 a very uh, observant of you to to see that that's what's happening in our website. So, yeah. what we are um, trying to communicate to clients—that's who our website is talking to, right? As well as potential hires, those are the two people that are going to visit your website, people that you want to work for color, people that are interested in color, and people that want color to work for them. So the website is designed to be attractive to those two audiences, those two constituencies. And so what we want to communicate is that there is a balance at color between what we call the art and science of communications, between equations and emotion yeah between data analytics and creativity and art and copy so you've got on one side you've got the art and copy of communications and on the other side you've got in a digital framework you've got data you've got digital medium you've got uh, digital consumers so you've got those 
those two things that are polar opposite in the environment that you're selling into, creativity and data analytics. And we need to communicate that we've figured out how to balance those two things. So we also balance seriousness and jest. So it is about balance of these yin yang features of the world that we live in now but that's common in a lot of the things that we you know come across in our lives we come across hot and cold right right warm and cool happy and sad so these are the two things that we balance in our lives all the time and you need them both to notice the other yeah. If if you were always warm, you would never appreciate warm. Yeah. You would never appreciate cool. If you're always cool, you would never appreciate, you know, what what it meant to, Ex- to be the opposite. Exactly. Right? And you, you couldn't experience the first one without the latter either. Right. Right. And so these two things in communications go together. Now for a, a long time since the 1950s, the popularization of the ad agency model, the center of creativity was in art and copy. Yes. So art directors and designers working with copywriters to put messages together. Yeah. And they would be the storytellers of your communication message, whether yeah. that was told through an ad or through a public relations message. There was always um, intentionally this, this creative element that included a team often of two people, an art director and a copywriter. And yeah. they would develop the idea together. If you ever watched the TV show Mad Men, you see that. That's how it happens. Yeah. Don Draper was a writer himself, so he was the conceptual thinker, but he always worked in those days with the studio to compose the art of the print ad. Yeah. Okay, so that's what agencies always defined as creativity. But in a data-driven universe, creativity is um, both the same as that, but more, because you need to be creative in understanding data and digital medium. So you have to have both sides of this equation. And, and sometimes it's like an agency, I'll say a modern agency, which color strives to be, yeah. is kind of like taking the uh, drama club at Acadia and merging it with the rugby team. Right? Yeah, which is preposterous. Or, or, the, or maybe a better analogy would be the engineering society, right? Yeah. So we're going to take, we're going to say, we're going to say, look, it's um, we're not going to have two clubs anymore. We've decided that the that the drama club will merge with the engineering society, and we're going to create something called engineering drama, or drama science. So drama science, the drama science club, is going to be the new really cool hip thing, right? And we're going to put these two clubs together. Sounds like it could be. It could be a hit. It could be a hit. It could be. Um, it could be a cultural disaster. Yeah. Because those two. Um, personality types and aptitudes don't hang out together often that's why there is a drama club they're polarized yeah there's a drama club because the guys and girls in the drama club get to hang out together because they like the same stuff and and the guys and girls probably mostly guys at the engineering club like to hang out because they like the same stuff but we say well wouldn't it be cool if we mash those two things together and it, and it turns out that it is very cool, yeah. but it's also very challenging. Yeah. So do you have like engineering students and then to continue yeah. this analogy, engineering students and drama students yeah. and they work on their own, like one does stats, one does creative and they just try to collaborate the best they can? Or? Somewhat, somewhat. But what we, what we try to do now is hire hybrids. Yeah. That's so that's why was... the tests I told you about before. So there's, there's writing and reading comprehension tests yeah. and data analysis tests. And we look for people that are good at both. Yeah. Right now, 
that is, is not, it's very rare you find people that are equally good at both. Often there's, typically, there's someone, people are stronger on one side of that equation than the other, but they need to be good enough on the other side. They, they need to respect and appreciate the other side at least. So those hybrids, those are the real, uh, real good hires for us. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating to see because so often when companies try to, they use either one or other uh, or an, uh, the other side of those and they have it as a mutually exclusive kind of option. They either try to present you with the data, the growth, the, the customer base, and, yeah. and that's that. Or they do madman style with just creative and, right. and catch your mind. It's right. not, I, I love how you guys balance both, especially um, I think, and another question I had that more or less got answered was like, how how do you balance the seriousness of a message in animations? Hypothetically, if you have like an mm. animated banana, how is that <laughs> banana supposed to convey the seriousness of the fruit you're selling, right? Mm. And I love like you guys, it's it's using the the statistics and the data behind it and having the animation as kind of the creative emotion. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Animation would be what would 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 emote the. Um, the feelings that we're trying to yeah. we're trying to bring out. So you mentioned Color.ca naturally is striving to be a modern company. Mm-hmm. Um, as modernization is flying ahead at a million miles an hour, do you guys have you first of all have you seen interest in this from your customers? And second of all, are you guys working on moving your operations at all? into virtual reality? So for companies like architects or architects, or uh, build, uh, builders and yeah. the like that need kind of a design. Are you um, working into designing that in virtual reality? Is that a market that you guys mm. have thought about moving into? It's um, so you're you're describing a um, you're describing a describing a medium type of, yes. uh, of communication, video, animation, virtual reality. Those those specialties in in uh, design and production typically exist inside um, production companies, not agencies. Okay. So a so um, we would work with film production companies or animation production companies. Sometimes right. those exist. Sometimes there's practices that exist in the same company, but there are pra- it's a it's a um, it's a production practice that's specialized inside those studios. Yeah. An agency operates in that space but often doesn't employ all those skills in-house because we want to look at a brand in in an unbiased way Mm. without owning media or production type we want to place the brand in the media and production type that's right for them and if we owned an animation studio then it would be very easy for us to apply animation to every brand. Yeah. Well, if we employed a VR studio, then we'd want to use VR with every brand, but VR doesn't apply to every brand. So, yeah. so we try to, as an agent, okay, that's the word agency comes from this notion of agent. We represent the brand into the production capabilities that exist throughout the industry. Yeah. So we have some capabilities to design into that space, but we wouldn't want to be so deep in VR or animation that we would start to be an animation studio exclusively. or VR studio exclusively. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of the thing where if a customer comes to you and they say like, I want VRs and, and VR is best for them, mm-hmm. then you'll do it. Otherwise you'll continue with mm-hmm. the traditional methods. Kind of. It's sometimes it happens that way. More often, 
and ideally it happens this way. The brand comes to us and says, we, would, we have the following business objectives. We want to increase awareness or mm. drive conversion of customers or we want to uh, reduce churn and increase loyalty or we just want to drive new, new sales, new customer acquisitions. Those are our business goals and objectives. And they'd say, what do you recommend we do? Okay, so when they say, this is our business objective, what do you recommend as a marketing communications agency? Then we look at all available options from traditional to digital and social media to point of sale opportunities to um, what we'd call experiential opportunities, meeting people on the ground at events and on the street. All of these different uh, we call channels are available to us to help you meet your goal. Yeah. We hope that the client lets us optimize the solution for them with okay. the right fit. Yeah. If they come to us and they'd say, we'd like you to develop a VR promotion for us, we'd say, yeah, okay, let's think about that. But are you open to other ideas? Yeah. Maybe don't include VR. Yeah, maybe that's not the best for you. Exactly. Like, look elsewhere. So it would go kind of, they give you their objectives, what they want to achieve, and then you move into, would you say, you s decide the platform best for them, social media, digital yep. print, and then you design the That's ad it. from there. That's it. We would we would front end it with a phase we call discovery. And in discovery, we just immerse ourselves more into their business and their products and their culture and their brand, if it exists yeah. in, a, in a profound way, then we try to understand what that is. And then we would move into what we call system planning, which is uh, unique to color, at least it's, it's somewhat unique. We haven't seen other agencies that do this, but system planning takes our background in understanding engineering systems and technology systems, information systems, and applying it to a modern communication system. So the system plan looks at all channels, digital and traditional or analog, and it looks at all mediums that we can produce in, and it tries to optimize through <clears throat> a customer journey. So we'd say, well, where, where do you want the customer or where do we want the customer to first get exposed to your brand? And then what do you want to do with them? What do you, yeah. What's the message? What's the story you want to tell? And then where do you want to take them from yeah. there? Do you want to take them into your social channels? Do you want to take them into your store? Do you want to make them get them to make a phone call? What is it that you want them to do in this customer journey on the way to purchase? Yeah. Right? So that system plan maps all that out. Once they sign off on the system plan, then we execute. We execute against that plan. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that formula. So as well with um, the increasingly lightweight companies uh, that are modernizing themselves uh, in society, um, a lot, there's been an increase in kind of ambassador and influencer advertising and marketing. So that's primarily focused around the social media world and partnering with large accounts to promote your brand, your product, T-shirts, uh, coffee, whatever. Yep. Um, do you guys have any work in that space? Or, and, and do you kind of interoperate there? Or are you still exclusively just creating media? Um, so, so influencer would be one of the channels, right? So, yeah, yeah. On, okay. on social. So inf an, an influencer on social media, uh, to us is like a banner ad on digital or a TV ad on TV. It's yeah. a channel to get the story across. Yeah. They're the medium, right? They're in the middle. The influencer is the middle between the buyer and the seller. Okay. Just like TV is in the middle medium media. That's yeah. the idea. So the influencer is the channel and, um, and yeah, we've actually done quite a bit in influencer marketing. 
Um, we even created a company called In Network to build a platform that connects brands to influencers. So it was, mm. an inf it was a global influencer database accessible through programmatic search by brands to find influencers and engage them in their brand programs. Right. So we worked with um, we worked with a number of great brands, uh, uh, Marriott hotel chains. We've worked with Budweiser beer out of New York was, uh, was a big, we ran three, three big influencer campaigns for Budweiser, one during the world cup, um, where we found, um, through our network two influencers, they were actually video podcast, um, uh, podcasters from London and, we engaged them in this Budweiser campaign who wanted to promote Budweiser in association with soccer in Europe. Mm. So Budweiser's not as big a brand in Europe as yeah. it is in North America. Football is the important platform in Europe. And Budweiser didn't own a big football franchise, a big, a big soccer franchise, yeah. right? They own a big football, American football franchise, not a European football franchise right. called soccer. And so we flew these these two bloggers to uh, Rio for the World Cup. They got uh, all access pass to <clears throat> the Budweiser Hotel, the Budweiser events, all the big games, uh, and they they created video podcast from Rio and then back at home yeah. to amplify the Budweiser story in association with uh, European football soccer. So I mean that's obviously a work of a work of genius using those two people to share with their followers because I mean it's 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 a delicate balance with ambassadors and influencers for them to just not be another paid advertisement right. they don't want to just be wearing a shirt and say go buy this shirt or drinking a Budweiser right. saying like go go <clears throat> buy this it's right. great beer or whatever right. so like I I love that because. People are gonna. They don't care what Budweiser's doing, what's going on. They're there. They want to watch football. They like these guys, these yeah. bloggers. So they're <clears> there, and then it's all about Budweiser. So they're absorbing that as yeah. well. Um, well, when when I'm uh, when our firm engages uh, social influencers for an influencer campaign, we encourage them to be uh, one hundred percent honest about their appreciation or lack of appreciation for the product. Yeah. My view is that is that that the consumer is smart enough to know the difference. So. If the influencer yeah, is making it up and doesn't love the brand, then the audience is going to know that and probably the brand will lose credibility. Creates a negative connotation. Both for the influencer and for the brand. So it's a double lose. Yeah. The alternative is if the influencer doesn't like the product and gives a an objective critique of why they don't like it, mm. then the influencer will gain credibility with the audience and I'd argue the brand gains credibility Absolutely. with the audience because the brand was brave enough to allow the influencer to yeah. present their product objectively and there will be people listening to that yeah. who will then say, well, I, that product actually does sound really cool and it sounds really great for me and it's not right for Brendan. He doesn't like it, but he doesn't like it for reasons that are different than mine, so yeah. I'm going to go out and buy that product. And, and, and you see, so it's a double win on a negative. Yeah. It's a double lose on on this positive. The fake uh, positive. Fake, on the fake positive. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that because it creates a, a sense of trust. Even though it, it can be deemed as negative, people trust the brand more because they're, like, they're not trying to lie to me. Right. right? They're telling right. the truth. <laughs> and it's like, 
And I, I'm literally thinking that through. Like, I would be much more inclined, like, looking at somebody saying, oh, this is great. Yeah. Versus <laughs> some saying, like, look, I was, I was trying this. I, I still kind of, kind of like Alpine a bit better. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, it's all right. I'd, I'd be like, hell, I'll try it. There's a great podcast. <clears throat> There's a whole series of podcasts, actually, run by a company called Crooked Media. In, in their podcast, it's paid media supported podcast and they read the ad copy now when they read the ad copy so that it's it's a bit of a hybrid mm. ad influencer model they're kind of social famous now and they carry a lot of influence so they read the ad copy themselves um and there's there's always two guys in the ad copy read around the medium and when they do it they make a lot of fun of the brand sometimes they trash the brand that's awesome Some, sometimes one guy hates the product and the other guy loves it but when they love it they talk about loving it so they've got they've got brands that um give them you know free sheets and pillows so they all sleep in these sheets and pillows and they love they love these sheets and pillows they talk yeah. about how they love the sheets and pillows there's um there's a product called uh, a new mail-in electric toothbrush okay the toothbrush is called quip Okay, quip is a very weird word for something you're going to put in your mouth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and one of the guys is gay. So, so, okay. so uh, John Lovett is gay and he always makes fun, real fun, always with a lot of sexual innuendo. Yeah. When he's reading this ad copy and it's hilarious <laughs> Oh. But it's so honest, right? Yeah, like you have what, a field day. Well, so. because it's just like anybody listening is like, what a weird name for a toothbrush. Yeah. And he makes fun of the name. He makes fun of the product. He creates all this innuendo that's yeah. really funny. And the brand lets it go. Yeah. Right? The brand actually encourages it. Yeah. Because it's making the brand famous. Yeah. It's People making, are enjoying it. It's making the brand remarkable in the truest sense yeah. that that ad and the story is worthy of remark. Yeah. Like I'm going to yeah. remark it. Right. I'm going to retell the story yeah. because the way John Lovett told the story on social media was so funny yeah. or interesting or provocative, right? And so I'm going to remark the ad when I tell it just like I just did to you and the millions of listeners to your podcast. Do mm. you have millions of listeners? Oh, I wish. We're getting there. <laughs> Ask me in a year. Okay. Right. Um, I... I love that because it, it shows that it's not all about strictly the message of mm-hmm. the it's because traditionally it's been the message. You need a positive message. You need to shine right. a positive light on it. Right. It, you can't have anything negative. It needs to be exclusive right. to that. Now it's showing it doesn't matter like barely anything about the message. It's all about how people feel about it, exactly. whether like you're laughing at it, you're making right. fun of it. Or you're genuinely complimenting it. It has almost nothing to do with the message. It has everything to do with how the message made you feel. 100%. Yeah. In the days... That's fascinating. I'll say in the old, old days, when brands like Coca-Cola were built, everybody watched the same TV show. Do you know the number one rated TV show of all time in the history of television was a show called I Love Lucy in 1957. Top rated TV show. It had an 80% rating, meaning 80% of TV households watched the show at the same wow. time. 80%. Wow. Top rated shows now would be single digits. Oh, yeah. And and if you look at Super Bowl ratings, the Super Bowl and the Academy Awards are the top rated shows of the year, mm. and they're in decline. 
year over year. But TV programming, like half-hour sitcom TV programming, has been in dramatic decline all the way to single digits. But back in the day, everybody watched the same shows. I Love Lucy, 80% of the North American households watched the same show at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. During that TV program, Coca-Cola could run an ad. Mm. And they could run the ad over and over and over again. So, so frequently that the jingle that would be played in the ad couldn't get out of your head. And they took the money that they would generate from increased Coke sales and they would pour it back into TV advertising and they would get more sales. So in those days, super brands were built. But super brands don't get built today because the media is so fragmented. I can't reach 80% of U.S. households ever with a single message. So you need to create messages that create a feeling and those feelings become make the message worthy of remark yeah. and the story can spread, you know, use the term viral or through word of mouth through social media. Yeah. And that's how you can get a chance at getting a bigger audience. That's incredibly valuable. And last night I was listening to Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you know him. He's- he owns an agency in New York called Vayner Media. Yes. That's his business. Yeah. He was famous for the launch of a wine brand in North America. Really? I don't yeah. know that. Well, that's so. how, that's how he he got famous because he was written about by Seth Seth Godin, who wrote about Gary's launch of this wine brand in North America, and he launched it through social media. That's how mm. he became social famous. Right. That's how Gary became social famous. He's famous now for different things, including kind of motivational speaking and, and a lot of that. Uh huh. Yeah, but and a lot of his motivational speaking is basically based around. Um, Get your ass in gear, stop being lazy, go out and advertise yourself on social media. Right. Can is is a very easy way to summarize yeah. the probably yeah. sixty minutes total yeah. I've I've listened to him. Yeah. But uh this anecdote that he was using is I was listening to him last night um talking about social media marketing, naturally. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the reason why uh Amazon is Amazon today is because in early two thousand when nobody was advertising on Google, because Google was just starting out who bought up all the ad space mm-hmm. Amazon did. Mm-hmm. And then he said, he said for a period of like six years, they did that and they blew up and he used a, a couple other examples, but I found that fascinating. They says like, he calls it like the low cost. Um, he used a couple of other examples for low cost attention. Oh yeah. He was using like the Beatles and, and Presley. Yeah. I didn't exactly follow him there, but yeah. he said he's, they're preying on, on low cost attention. And he said, social media is rampant with, low cost attention real estate and you right. can just go and, and gobble that up go and gobble that up yeah yeah i don't disagree yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm just drawing the correlation there between yeah. coke in the 50s and now our modern day that's right eras. yeah it's, but it's, coke coke in this coke in the 50s was it was doing the same thing it was gobbling yeah. up low cost attention yeah which was cheap to buy and ubiquitous and it was television yeah yeah in our business as agents for brands we're competing in that same space yeah. for attention with a celebrity culture, with an influencer culture, in a social culture where there's very few filters between you know, fact and fiction, between yeah. false and truth. Right. Yeah. So, so very little accountability. Very little yeah. accountability. So so brands need to um, need to uh, accept that they're playing in a completely different game now than they used to play in. Even yeah. Five years ago, it was a different game. Yeah. If, if you look at, to use the political analogy, which is an exercise in communications, the the last three uh, political cycles in the United States are all dramatically different. 
just four years apart. Mm. And the next one will be dramatically different again. Yeah. And 2024 will be dramatically different again. Yeah. So it's changing very quickly. And so how does Kaladasi, like, how do you guys gain customers and stay relevant without being a performer and going out doing speeches, whatever else? Yeah. What's your strategy in this? Well, it, yeah, it's another good question. So we don't uh, engage so much in the speaking circuit and we don't engage mm. so much in the social popularity contest. Mm. We're more relationship-based in our business. So we try to yeah. build <clears throat> good relationships with good people who can become good clients. And um, we want to serve them well with by applying our expertise. So it's a it's an old-fashioned model of doing business yes. in, in, in a new model way. So a bit of a speculative philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the two, the two sides of the, the coin here. You have the social media popularity, yelling contest, who has the most social attention, and you can build a network through that, build your business, your company through that. Or you have traditional, like kind of more handshake, go for supper, build like real relationships, mm-hmm. that is. Um, do you think, I mean, it seems like it's been shifting a lot towards social popularity on social media screaming contests mm-hmm. and presenting and the like that have have really built a lot of um, big people and big successes yeah. <clears throat> do you think that will overgrow the traditional way of doing it yes. through relationships really yeah. or because yeah. i thought there would always still be a place for the old-fashioned like i met you i like you let's do business together yeah uh i i wish you were right i hope you're right because mm. that's that's Same. That's where that's where I'm more comfortable personally in in my business, but the evidence w- is stacking up against that yeah. that uh, scenario. Yeah. If you just look at how popular the loudest voice is, you know how how successful the loud and popular voice is. Um, it's a reality in culture. Could could the I'll say um, style of attraction, if I could call it that, could it change and revert? back to more humanist uh, mm. values based relationships uh, it could it could it'll be I, I'm, I'm not a future seer so I don't know but um, it'll depend on um, I think how well this experiment works yeah. right this experiment in a new style of leadership and brand yeah. and and communication this experiment called social um, is is without a doubt showing some real cracks, right? Um, tragedies in the last week in the United States um, are evidence of <clears throat> the real cracks in the lack of a filter in the social media narrative and dialogue and how it can, it does, and it will continue to incite fringe parts of society to feel empowered yeah. who without that social um audience to egg them on to egg them on or to listen to them yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't have had the confidence yeah in their basement of just being angry people yeah <laughs> they would just stay in their basement as angry people yeah angry at whatever but with social media you know the last uh, the, his last post that the the shooter or the alleged shooter in in Pittsburgh, his last post was, "I'm tired of seeing my people attacked. I'm going in." That's how this experiment is in some ways gone very bad. Yeah. 
So, um, a question I have, the forward-looking question I have to ask as a result of this is, is there an easy answer to bringing this situation back around? I mean, social media addiction, but also the, the hate in society. Is it further education? Is it government spending on the underprivileged? Like, is there any easy answers mm. that you've thought about that could could kind of revert us back to a more sane, healthy path? Well, the the the, the libertarian view is human nature will guide us okay? yeah it's best right. instincts and it's worst instincts yeah so um my hope would be that human nature will guide us toward our our better instincts yeah all people accepted you know acadia was yeah. created uh out of a sense of diversity do you know that when dalhousie was formed 200 years ago this year they were intending to be non-denominational but in those days universities were tied to religion so yeah. st mary's uh was catholic st of x was catholic right um uh king's college was presbyterian that was the okay. predecessor to well it was it was the first college in nova scotia was king's college <clears throat> and it was presbyterian protestant scottish and you need and it was they were like schools of theology where you went to study the religion and higher education. That's what yeah. universities were based on. But Dalhousie was trying to become non-denominational, but they couldn't quite crack it. So a couple of uh, Baptists from the Valley that wanted to teach in the early days at, at Dow weren't accepted because they weren't Presbyterian. Okay. And so they came back and they formed Acadia, but they, they, were, they were more open, even though there's a strong you know, Baptist community mm. yeah. in the founding of Acadia, in its bylaws and in its constitution and in its origin, it is it is intending to be more open. And I think if you look around Acadia today, you certainly see successfully that. so all religions in one chapel. I that's, mean, that's awesome. Just yeah. think about that: all the religions that are that are celebrated in the one yeah. Manning Chapel. Yeah, it's an amazing. Thing. It is very impressive. Yeah. So you're fortunate to have that exposure, and you'll probably and most I think most Acadia grads leave here and expect well, the rest of the world's like this yeah it's not yeah the rest of the world is very segregated yeah very yeah. um does the naming acadia play into that at all or was that because of the history of the grounds here because i remember reading that um that this was one of the battlegrounds when uh that the acadians were on when For the sure. british came up the bay of fundy in here that's right so yeah that's I've, right and the the acadians were expelled and went to places like new orleans where they yeah. are now known as Cajuns. And so that's the that's the root. Um yeah, I think I think it does. Originally, if I'm not mistaken, Acadia was um wanting to be called uh Queen's University. So they went to London to apply to use that name because you need the royal charter from London to be called Queen's mm. and they missed it. The little school in Kingston beat them to it. So Kingston <sighs> college got the name queens queens university Acadia was a second oh, was their shit. second choice uh so almost wrapping up here on the note of uh our grand social scale mm -hmm. direction forwards um tying that back closer to home with the students here listening at Acadia university mm -hmm. is there advice you would have um towards i mean business students and and drama theater students alike mm -hmm. um going forward into their careers and Entrepreneur, mm -hmm. maybe even entrepreneur pursuits. Mm. 
Um, well, I, I would say, one thing I would say is it's, it's okay to wake up afraid. Because if you're waking up afraid a little bit, then you're thinking about today's challenges or life's challenges, uh, challenges in getting through your midterm exams or yeah. challenges in your love life or whatever, <clears throat> challenges in your life, uh, worried about getting a job when you graduate. I'd say it's okay to wake up afraid. I wake up afraid most days of what the world's going to throw at me that day and yeah. wondering if I'm enough to mm. fight it off. Um, and so I've kind of embraced that fear, uh, just kind of notice it and acknowledged it. And then, uh, I get out of bed and, yeah. I, and I get at it and I face it the best that I can. You, yeah. you got to get up early yeah. and you've got to work hard. Uh, I've got three, three grown kids and you know, the advice I would give them and do give them is that the pursuit of pleasure is kind of an empty road, mm. right? Your vocation in life, your work, what you build or create, whatever that is in whatever field, whether it's music or drama or technology or a business or sport, whatever it is, whatever your vocation is, take it seriously, own the responsibility to make the most of it because no one else will. No one else will own that responsibility. And if you, if you can do that and work hard and a little extra hard, a little harder than the other guy, then you're going to find, I think, success in your life and some form of pleasure in your work is the most rewarding. Yeah. It's not to say you can't have fun, but fun should come at the end of the day after a hard day's work or at yeah. the end of the week after a hard week's work. And uh, the hard day's work and the hard week's work is honestly what's always given me the 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 energy to uh, enjoy my life. Carry it forward. And on that note, thank you very much, Chris, for coming here for the Axe Change Business School podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for listening today. Please tune in next week. We will have even more podcasts up. Goodbye and good day. The Exchange Podcast is produced by the Fred C. Manning School of Business Administration using studio facilities provided by Axe Radio. This is a volunteer production. If you would like to donate to help support the Exchange Podcast, please see podcast under the News and Events tab on the business homepage at business.acadiau.ca. Thank you. Exchange would like to thank Paul Callahan, Jonathan Campbell, Kendra Carmichael, Duane Curry, Ian Feltmate, Mike Kennedy, Ryan McNeil, Michael Shepard, Connor Vibert, and Emma Hope. Music is Pickup Truck by Silent Partner. Access copyright free at the YouTube Audio Library. Follow the Axe Change podcast on the News and Events tab on the business homepage or at SoundCloud under Axe Change. Until next time, I'm Grace Butler, yours in Acadia Spirit. Thank you.